You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming strong with another edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns 24-7. I am Jeff Howe. Let's not waste any time and let me bring in the rest of the team. He is the master of the soundboard, the drop machine extraordinaire, our lead research analyst on Longhorn Blitz, and a daily fantasy guru. He is Matt Butler. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well, man. How about you? Not too shabby. Normally, we're joined by the third member of our team, our lockdown corner here on Longhorn Blitz, lifetime Longhorn 2002 UT All-America 2002 semifinalist, for the Jim Thorpe Award, fourth-round draft choice of the New York Giants back in 2003, spent his NFL career with the Giants, Lions, Bears, Bucks, Broncos, and the year with the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. When he was done with football, he got himself back to Austin, Texas, and the 40 Acres, where he earned his degree. Whenever that T-ring comes back in, we will make sure he wears it proudly. Nevertheless, he is a card-carrying member of DBU, and when you get that All-American honor recognized by the NCAA, they make sure you get one of those black cards. Number 21 in your program, number one in your hearts, Mr. Rod Babers. Rod joins us each and every week, but... Matt and I are very, very happy to report that the reason why Rod Babers is not joining us on this week's edition of Longhorn Blitz is because, ladies and gentlemen, Rod Babers is officially a father. Rod and his lovely wife. Uh, Matt, I don't know when's the last time you talked to Rod. Uh, he and I texted very quickly this morning. Sounded like everything was uh, on the up and up. Everything was going well. Baby was born Monday night about 8.15 p.m. Uh, you actually talked to Rod earlier in the day and you said, man, it sounds like, uh, sounds like this deal is happening tonight and you yeah, were right. He, yeah. He hit me up around noon and just needed somebody to go feed the dogs. Cause he was like, we're headed to the hospital and it was coming. And then, like you said, he already, I hadn't even went to his house yet. And, uh, he called me up. It was like, man, baby came out quick. He's like, we're already done. And it was like, uh, like you said, already nine o'clock at night. So Maybe they were able to get some rest, but it's awesome they were able to have the baby, no issues whatsoever. Yeah, it's uh, man, it's, it's it's great. I'm so happy for Rod and for Mel. This is awesome. I know this is something they've uh, been looking forward to. Uh, six pounds eight ounces, baby girl. So uh, congratulations, Rod, Mel. Uh, you guys are gonna be awesome parents, and uh, we'll we'll get Rod back. I think next week, Matt. I think I, I think he's planning on just jumping right back into it, but. Uh, he was trying to ask me about it this morning. I'm like, man, don't don't worry about the blitz. Just go, you go enjoy every minute with your family, man, because this is gonna be the kind of stuff you remember uh, until you leave this mortal earth. So so happy for him. So happy for that. Yeah, family. and for uh, sure. And whenever they first uh, knew that they were having a baby, and I did the timetable in my mind, and I know Rod's birthday like almost falls on Texas OU. I was like, man, 
you may be having a Texas OU, baby. Sounds like he'll be back for the Texas OU week. So that's quite fitting for Rod Babers, considering his birthday sometimes falls on Texas OU Day. Yeah, I remember we were talking about it because we we fed, you and I found out at the same time when we were in the the old studio, and I was like, man, that would be that'd be wild if if Rod if Rod had a, a Texas OU baby, but uh, nevertheless, he has a September baby. So again, congratulations to uh, to Rod Mel. And, and, and while and, we're and on the, the subject. Family. I got to wish you a happy birthday because you had one last week and we, I guess it was in between shows, but something that didn't go unnoticed. So happy birthday to you. Thank you, sir. It is my, uh, it's my Gail, Gail Sayers year. How about that? My Sean Kemp year. Yes. Yes. 40. That's a big one. How about my, as a Cowboys fan, how about it's my Bill Bates year? We'll go with that. That's it. Don't run over any ref or changemen. That's about it. I'll try not to run over the chain gang. Uh, Texas ran over Baylor, though, Matt. We'll talk about Texas and Baylor, uh, and we'll get into Kansas, too, because uh, I know you you uh, I don't, unintentionally did got ahead of your Kansas research for Daily Fantasy, so we'll go ahead and, and look through some of that. But let's go ahead, Matt, and real quick look back at Baylor. I told a lot of people this. Uh, in the press box, pretty, pretty much anybody that was within an earshot of me. And I, you remember what I told you and Rod, how when Texas played at Baylor in 2019, uh, Matt Rules last year, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Baylor had that really good D-line with James Lynch and, and, and that really good, you know, Terrell Bernard was in the linebacker group. They had a really good defensive front. And I said, man, I, said, I realized about two possessions into the game that yeah, Texas isn't going to score today. Uh, that Baylor defense is just too good. They're owning the line of scrimmage. It was the other way except the opposite this time. I realized even after that first series, when they got the back-to-back sacks, like Murphy just busted loose, and then Baron Sorrell getting a what felt like an uncontested sack on a three-man rush, it was it was over pretty much from that point. It was just like, okay, how, what can the Texas offense put together to make this thing, to make the final score, whatever it's going to be? Matt, I, it's been a long time since we've seen – you know, championship caliber defense pretty much over the first quarter of the season and the first third of the season really is what we're into now. Now we're through the fourth game and we know it's going to be really hard for teams to run on Texas. Now, now you're going to be, we'll get into Kansas later. You're facing a little bit of a different animal this weekend, next week with Oklahoma compared to what you've seen, but it's been really hard for teams to run on Texas. Uh, they're rushing the passer w- without blitzing all the time. They're able to just with their front four or their front three get a pass rush and, and using using their blitzers uh, a little more conservatively maybe, still blitzing, but doing it a little more conservative, which I think is, we talked about it, that's probably a little more uh, PK speed. And, you know, they're they're giving up some big plays in the secondary, but, man, we've talked about it a lot, Matt. You, Rod, and I have in the, in the decade plus we've been doing this podcast. You know, the Big 12 for years has been a league, and I think it's still this way, and it's this way in football. I mean, it, it really doesn't matter a whole lot what you do between the 20s, but if you can be really good in the red zone and you can be good enough on third down to get off the field when you really need to get off the field and you could do just enough in terms of generating turnovers, it's going to keep you in a lot of games. And and the Texas defense, they're not, they're not only doing that, Matt, but they got now the raw numbers, the analytics, however you want to look at it. This is a championship caliber defense Texas has right now. 
Yeah, because like you're saying, winning at the line of scrimmage, like you could tell right out of the gate, like Sawyer Robertson just didn't have a shot out there. It was the, the pressure was just on top of him, eating him alive the second he was stepping back to throw. And then you could all also tell the tenor and the confidence that Sark had in his defense whenever it's one of your first couple drives. And you see Texas, it was, I think, a third and three, and it looks like you're in four down territory, but you get a loss and it goes back to fourth and six. I thought still Sark, you know, in the plus territory was going to be going for it but now he punted the ball and it was because he has confidence in playing complimentary football and knows that man Baylor's not going to be able to move this 90 yards downfield we have confidence we'll get the ball back quick and Texas ended up doing so when you look across the board like you said you can move between the 20s like every team in the Big 12 is going to have somebody like a Monterey Baldwin who in space can get going but if you're able to just clinch down inside the red zone, a player like Jalen Ford, like seems like picking off balls in the end zones is going to become like his like expertise, something that he just knows where the offense is going and mentally puts himself in these advantageous positions to make these great plays. But yeah, and then if you don't want to talk about just the front four, the entire defense, when you look at just net points per drive, I know if anybody wants to follow somebody that's great with college football stats, check out Stats O War. That's Stats O War on Twitter. Yeah, Parker Texas, Fleming. Parker, Parker does a great job. Yeah, he does. Full, he had Texas at net points per drive. Defense is fourth in the country, 0.57 net points per drive, which is just great to see Texas because sometimes you can tell a team has a good defense, but there are a few plays here or there that may slip or aren't able to get the results you necessarily want. But when you can see it on the field and then you look at the numbers and like, oh, yeah, Texas, they're giving up, yeah, about a half a point each time the team gets a football. That's a big time. And – and I, we got an email. Uh, by the way, if you want to email the show, feel free. It's longhornblitzpod at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, I want to thank Patrick Lawrence for the email. And, uh, you know, Patrick made a point where you know, it's, it's time to sing PK's praises. And I'll read the part of the email right here, Matt. It says, that man has gotten so much flack during his time on the 40, and all he's done is quietly lead Texas being the number one defensive efficiency team in the country, multiple goal line stands where Baylor came away with zero points. Y'all talk about how in order to win championships, you need to have elite quarterback play or elite defense, and now we have both. Quinn got his lures after the performance in Tuscaloosa. It's time PK gets his after making a, a living hell for every offense that we played this year. I could not agree more. And we talked about early on, the misdiagnosis this defensive staff had of what the Big 12 was, but we've talked about it too, man. Like the Big 12, even in the the three years that PK's been here, man, it's changed. Like you still got a little bit of the air raid influence because you've got Holgerson in this league and Zach Kitley in this league, but I've talked about the hybrid spread culture uh, that's kind of engulfed the Big 12 now, and I think now it's a little more palatable for a guy like PK to understand, as Rod would always say, the Big Twelve, it's a, it's a a passing, it's a running league club masquerading as a, a cross dressing as a pass uh, passing league, or I probably just butchered it. However, Rod says it, but you you point. got it, yeah, yeah. You you think oh it's it's wide open, it's airy, they're throwing the ball everywhere. No, no, they everybody in the Big Twelve wants to be able to run the football, and you're seeing that now, and I think that's. The na- it feels like just the natural evolution of offense, maybe more than anything, has helped PK adjust. I think having Gary Patterson last year to really understand how to play that match quarters coverage also helped. 
And now you look at where they are. He's combined understanding of the league with a better grasp on the kind of scheme he wants to run with the fact that now this is the third year in a row he's worked with these coaches. And on top of the fact, Rod said it many years ago, I agree with him wholeheartedly, Matt. You win on defense with personnel. They're winning with personnel, too. Let's not kid ourselves. PK's got the right combination of scheme, uh, understanding his opponents, and personnel to make this all work. And that's where, like, the idea when we always talk about self scouting and knowing your own team better than you know your opponent is so valuable. And you got to recruit the right players to fit that. And that's where you see just sort of the connection all the way from, say, Bo Davis on the O line to Flood, uh, or Bo Davis on the D line to Flood on the O line to the coordinators to the head coach and getting that vision, but then actually having it play out with the big humans up front, knowing where you're going as a program in the SEC, but also. That's just a formula to win big-time football. And Texas, like you said, in a league where you do have your – like this week we're playing Kansas who, say, fits the profile of a stereotypical Big 12 team in the idea that their, their defense isn't so great, but their offense can put up big numbers. But when you look at them, they're a team that runs the ball more mm-hmm. than expected. Like they're a plus 2.6% run rate over expectation compared to like Texas is still one that passes more than you would expect at times. And across the Big 12, you got a couple of those like I know whenever Jeff Levy he was at Ole Miss and a lot of people thought that Ole Miss was just throwing the ball all over the field but you've seen that natural evolution where they become a team that runs the ball more than they throw the ball and sort of combining the spread concepts but with a power-ish running game like Kansas is going to bring a lot of different looks and they'll have guys that are you know big time almost uh, you'd say the traditional tight ends but they become like blocking H-backs fullbacks that Mm -hmm. they use in motion and stuff along those lines so it's a lot different of a look except for like say like you said kitley's air raid's pretty air raid but other than that you're gonna have a lot of those hybrid styles where if you can't win up front they can punish you and that's something that texas in previous years has gotten beat up a little bit in and this year you don't have to worry about yeah, it, you got to. I'm interested to really get into studying Oklahoma. Now we'll we'll talk about Kansas, and I know we're a week away from our OU podcast, but I really want to study that Jeff Levy offense because, you know, again, I preface everything I say about this guy by say what you want about Art Bryles, and and rightfully so, the criticism that he gets, but maybe the greatest trick that he pulled. You know, on the football field was convincing the college football world. Oh man, that Art Browse offense! Hey, they chuck it all over the yard. No nah, man, the veer and shoot wanted to stretch you horizontally, so that they could not just attack you vertically in the passing game. But we saw it with Deontay Foreman in 2016 when Sterling Gilbert and Matt Maddox brought the veer and shoot to Texas. You create massive vertical seams naturally in the run game with your spacing, and they can gash you that way. I mean, we saw. Think about some of those big time running backs that that Baylor had, whether it was Terrence Ganaway or you know there was Lake mm-hmm. Seastrunk for a minute, Johnny Jefferson. I mean, Baylor had some had some really good backs during that time. And then I, you know, again, we saw it with Deontay, they can gash you vertically in a run game. Uh, so that's kind of where to me that whole idea of the Big Twelve fooling everybody. Oh, it's a passing. No, no, no. They they want to play power football. They want to pound you. And really that's kind of what Baylor has had built their their reputation on, Matt, right now is Jeff Grimes and that, that wide zone offense. I just it it really puzzled me that 
Baylor kept trying to run wide zone on Texas where <laughs> you, there are certain areas where you can attack this Texas defense like we talked about. But trying to get horizontally, trying to get horizontal and then trying to find a crease with as well as this defense runs and fits the run, dude, you're just going number one into the wind at that point over and over. Like, they telegraphed that fourth down call, Matt. Am I wrong about that? Like, when it was fourth fourth and two or whatever it was, and they ran a wide zone with Dominic Richardson, you're just like, dude, that's not going to work. And Tavondre Sweat blew that thing up. So, I I don't know, man. I, I didn't feel like... Baylor doesn't have a lot of answers about anything right now, but it's like once they couldn't get – it's like Jeff Grimes kept kind of – every now and then you can see, okay, we'll go back to it, see if we can run it. And it's like, dude, why why zone ain't going to work tonight, man? You you got to find another way to try to run the ball, and they never really did. Yeah, and, and that, that's because what Texas has the two things. You have the wide, big humans up front, but the speed on the back end, you can't go east-west against Texas because they're going to be able to outrun you, and the guys up front are going to beat you, and that's just going to open up the holes for the guys in the back end to come clean everything up. And That's why I was a bit surprised because whenever Texas was at its elite stage in the 2000s, one of the main things that would be beating Texas constantly would be Texas's over-pursuit, and a lot of teams would use misdirection against them and that was something where like if you're a team like Baylor and you have a few guys that are really quick I was surprised that we didn't see more of that misdirection it was a really simplified offensive game plan and that's just you can't do that against this Texas team yeah like you said a couple years ago you could sort of bludgeon whenever Randa showed up at Baylor even you could maybe go and pull some of that off but you can't pull that off against this Texas team they're too big and disciplined up front they're just gonna win and then if not the guys behind them are too fast they're gonna make up for anything well you just said it though that to me is the key up front you're winning like go back two years ago when texas lost the game in waco and abram smith went like nuts in the second half i forgot what Mm -hmm. baylor what he ran for that day but i think he had over 100 yards just in the second half and they just kept gashing him with zone runs that he was just cutting back and we talked about this because Man, the technique up front was just so poor that it's like, dude, if, if you're a de- if you're a defense trying to defend trying to defend a, a zone scheme, period, or really a, especially a wide zone scheme, man, if you just keep running with that block, thinking I'm just going to hold this guy up, any backward their salt is going to be able to read that and cut back where there's not going to be a defender to get to to eliminate a zone running game. The thing that will kill a zone running game, you got to get penetration, and man, Texas. Not only are they big, but you just hit it on the head, Matt. They're athletic, and they can win. They can win at the point of attack. And winning this, winning in this game, they won with penetration, stopping Baylor's zone run game. And the fact that they never got the zone, the wide zone established, that had to put the whole game in Sawyer Robertson's hands. And, you know, when they weren't taking shots, I, I, we didn't say it on the podcast so much, but later in the week, uh, I've said this on, you know, talked about it on the site a little bit and, and, and said it elsewhere. Like, you know, the only chance I thought Baylor really had was maybe they could take some shots down the field because they, they do take shots. That's one of the things that they are kind of a signature in their offense. Like, they will throw the ball deep more often than they're not to throw. Like, they don't have much of an intermediate game. Like, they're usually either – it's usually either screens or they're taking some kind of intermediate to deep shot. And I figured, okay, maybe they do that thinking we can, we'll either hit it or we'll, you know, test these Texas corners that haven't really been tested yet 
and maybe we can get a DPI. And they were able to do that a couple of times, but it just didn't add up to much because, you know, they were in third and forever. And that kind of allowed Texas to hang back and maybe play a little more zone. It just nothing went right for Baylor because Texas just stuffed their run game from the jump and they never got it going. Yep, and then also the pass rush was just eating everybody up up front. Like that entire first half, Baylor had no shot. Once you saw Martinez come in, he's a bit more mobile and able to move around. I think that's a guy they may use in the future just because there's just that added value that you get whenever you have a quarterback that when you – lose the play you can win the play still with the mobile quarterback I mean we're starting to see a bit more with Quinn healthy this year Quinn being able to use his legs as a weapon and that's sort of an untapped territory that Texas hasn't even got into but you could see the glaring difference between a guy like Robertson who has maybe say functional mobility but a guy like Martinez that knows that well if the play isn't looking good I can use my feet and maybe extend this not only for the pass the way guys like say Michael Penix does and you see guys in the pros like say CJ Stroud he's able to do but a guy that uses his feet to throw and then maybe also be able to run to add on to it it's just that added value that you could clearly see at least help Baylor move the ball a bit in the second half can we just can I just say this about Baylor uh and I just want to ask you Matt because my my brother is a hardcore Baylor fan bless his heart yes I was I was getting the the hot sports opinions from my brother Joe throughout the game. And one thing I told him that really just kind of blew me away was, man, Baylor doesn't look very big and they look pretty slow. Yeah. And compared to like where Matt rule had that thing, I don't know. That was my big concern about Baylor. And when we talked about this league in the preseason and I said, man, I can see Baylor being in contention. When we talked about U of H and West Virginia, being the two worst teams like by the way West Virginia's one and oh in the conference and they're three and one look out because I don't know how Texas Tech went to Morgantown and and lost that football game but they did but West Virginia's trying to work their way out of the cellar man Baylor's dropping fast because my big concern has always been and, and the three of us have talked about it not, not a whole lot of other people talked about it when those Matt Rule guys those guys and we know Matt Rule's a great talent evaluator when those guys that Matt Rule recruited were all out of the program and it was going to be up to Dave Aranda to recruit and develop his own guys that's been missing but also Baylor now is a and we're seeing a little bit with Clemson but in our own backyard here in the state of Texas Baylor is exhibit a man if you don't get out and use the transfer portal to your advantage yep you're gonna get left behind pretty quick and that's the other problem with Baylor is they really have not used the transfer portal like some other programs have Yeah, and you said it there when talking about it's either that they got some big guys that aren't fast or then their only fast guy is a tiny dude like Monterey Baldwin. Like, you got to combine the two. You got to have some dudes with some size and some speed. And, yeah, your point about Clemson spot on. Just if you haven't taken advantage of the modern rules, then you're going to be left behind because you can have other – I mean – Colorado's a poster child of it and how you can become like the cellar dweller, arguably one of the bottom five teams in all of college football for multiple years. Ever since basically Texas played them in that Alamo Bowl, you would see Colorado somewhere around 120 to 130 in most of the rankings. 
to become a team that could be in the top 25, which is just immediate turnaround. And you see it all the way across other places too. So you got to be able to bring that talent in. And when you look at just say where the landscape of the big 12 is, I pulled some of the quick odds, like Texas, the favorite to win the big 12 at minus 120. Oklahoma's a two to one dog to win the big 12. Kansas state's at eight to one. Then you got TCU Kansas at 20 to one. But to your point on teams like Baylor, you have UCF at 50 to one, West Virginia at 60. You have Tech at 80, Cincy at 100, Oklahoma State at 120 to one. Then it's Baylor, Iowa State at 150 to one. And the only team behind them is Houston at 250 to one. Man, boy, if there was ever a year for Texas to have Oklahoma State on the schedule, why why couldn't it have been this year? Or maybe they could have gotten <laughs> some of that revenge on Mike Gundy for some past transgressions he's had of beating Texas. Like the fact that the fact that Major Applewhite as the OC in South Alabama went to Stillwater and put it <laughs> on him is one thing. But man, you get outscored by Iowa State. You get outscored by Iowa State, an offense where their two best players are starting quarterback and they're starting running back are on the shelf for you know, alleged gambling issues like I don't know, man. Mike Gundy's just—he's losing it. It's slipping away really fast from him. But you're getting back. All to of the, his players are portaling out. Yeah, exactly. The portal's working against him. But you know, getting back to Baylor, though, Matt, it's not just their skill guys. You know, their skill guys lacking size and speed. Man, it's up front. Like their offensive line doesn't look near what it did two years ago when they went. Like if you if you put this roster up against the roster that Dave Aranda won the big 12 with two years ago. Like it just shows you how important roster management is because like we saw at Texas, like it was under Mac, like when the downfall started, like it was years of misappropriation of scholarships that got you into that hole that when the bottom finally fell out, you could go back and kind of piece everything together. But with the portal, Yes, you can turn it around quickly. As you mentioned, Colorado. How about our alma mater, Matt? Texas State. Yeah, Texas State. They were right behind Colorado in terms of the number of transfer guys they took. Some guys followed G.J. Kenny from Incarnate Word, and they were able to pull a T.J. Finley from Auburn, and uh, they've gotten some transfers. That's all you got to say. They beat Baylor. Yeah. Handedly. You can – exactly. That wasn't a fluke. Like, I watched the second half of that game. I was like, dude, I think Texas State looks like a better football team than Baylor. That's why I was like, man, Texas is covering. There's no way. I was like, Texas State was up by 15 against Baylor in the first half. Can, Texas is yeah. only favored by 15. Yeah, you can you can get it. You can get yourself out of the out of the gutter really quick if you use the portal to your advantage. But if you misuse the portal or fail to use the portal, you can go from the penthouse to the outhouse really quick too. Yeah, and whenever you just look at the Baylor roster, the size, like those guys, they just don't have a shot up front because they're getting pushed around off the ball. Like the entire line, you had three-man rushes from Texas getting home in the first quarter. Like yeah. that was before you had a, a tired team. That was fresh out the locker room, and three-man rush were getting to the quarterback. Like when you see that, you, there's nothing you can do. The one thing I will say, and I don't like getting into too much – secondary and coverage stuff without Rod here. But the one thing I will say that is a little bit concerning defensively, and and we saw this from, from Alabama, uh, you know, Jalen Milrow was able to do it. Uh, you know, if you can use, you know, bunch formations, leverage, 
you know, route concepts, some of those quarters beaters that we talk about. If you can use some of that stuff to get the safeties, especially in one-on-one coverage, uh, that's one area where you can attack Texas. And and that Matt, we you know we saw Baldwin do that. Like that's the one part of the of the defense where this defense has been vulnerable is the safeties. It, it hadn't really been Jalen Catalan. Like I noticed, like teams really don't test this safety group when Catalan's out there. But we've seen it. It's been Jaron Thompson. Uh, it's been Keaton Crawford. It was Keaton Crawford against Wyoming. It was Michael Taft this last game. There are some matchups where the safeties are just naturally going to be vulnerable. That's one of the very few weak spots this Texas defense has right now. Yeah, and a lot of those things, though, too, they aren't independent to just Texas. It's just the way that you can beat. And, mo- and modern offenses have certain hacks, and the True, more that yep. you use those bunch bunch groupings, and you know, we didn't see tons of pre-snap motion from Baylor, but you know, you're going to see a lot more of that going forward, especially when when you're f- facing some of these offenses Texas sees in the next couple weeks. To where just getting motion and being able to blur the picture pre-snap, but then to be able to run guys through multiple players zones and then using the bunch formations just to make players naturally have to basically pick each other out of the play those are just things that you see like in the height of the nfl you'll see some teams like shanahan and mcdaniel using like 80 90 percent of the time using motion and it's just it's surprising that more teams haven't caught on now there are some complexities to stuff like that and you don't want to go around and be committing penalties, but you also can't play football afraid. And if there are certain things that you see the elite teams do that consistently give you a better chance to win, it's pretty dumb to just ignore it because of the fear that you might screw up. It's interesting, too, when you think think about it from this standpoint. You know, Texas is like, let's just take the passing game, for example, right? Texas runs, you know, that match quarters coverage. Uh, Nick Saban has been a, a pattern match quarters guy for forever uh, Pat Narduzzi does some of the same stuff that Saban does but you know you look at Nick Saban's defense and man Sark had plenty of practice plenty of practice not only going against that Alabama defense in practice but man when when they scrimmage or you know they go good on good in, in practice and granted during the season you're running more scout team stuff but with Texas being a match quarters team Sark goes into a game like if you're if you're a predominantly a quarters defense Sark goes into that week of game planning, knowing all the quarters beaters. Like you said, man, every every coverage has stuff that will beat it, man. There are cover two mm-hmm. beaters, there are man beaters, there are cover three beaters, and there are quarters beaters. And we've seen it like go back to the Alabama game. Uh, it's so it, it's almost the the Xavier Worthy touchdown and the Jermaine Burton touchdown where Bama got Texas, where Jermaine Thompson couldn't, I mean, I'm sorry, Jaron Thompson couldn't catch up to Jermaine Burton. It's almost it's almost the same concept, right? Like if you mm-hmm. can put that safety in conflict into the boundary with the slot guy running like some kind of vertical route where he's pushing up the field, uh, and then and then maybe he runs like a comeback, like some kind of little stick concept or something, and you can get him to declare. Now you vacate that area uh, for the for the wide receiver running his route back across the formation, and now yeah. it's a one on one situation with a safety and. You know, if you don't have elite recovery speed, that's just a matchup you're going to lose. So that's just something, like you said, I don't know that that's that that's something that necessarily is. I don't, I don't know that it's a fixable problem, so to say. I think it's just something that, hey, naturally, because you're a match quarters team, you're a match quarters team, 
you're just going to have to naturally be aware of that stuff and stay yeah. within your stay, understand what you're being asked to do within the coverage and just be, just be assignment sound more often than not, if you're just assignment sound. And that's what happens when, when busts happen, it's guys not being assignment sound thinking they're seeing one thing. And then all of a sudden they vacate their area and the, the open man is running by him. So, and, and I, you know, if you think about it, Matt, probably when you sit in a film session, the, the secondary coach or, you know, Terry Joseph is the defensive pass game coordinator. PK is probably telling you, look, we're not worried about that because that's going to be a 12-yard completion. We'll get the ball stopped. What we're worried about is if you vacate the area, now it's a 50-yard touchdown. Yeah, so and that's it's just where, an assignment sound. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's where, like, over time, like you said, after you've been beat with it a time or two, maybe you can see that guy in the periphery that's dragging over from the weak side. Like, in my mind, it's always stood out in every single week when you watch football, you'll see the play over and over again. But the play that LSU and, and Jordan Jefferson beat or Justin Jefferson beat Texas on back on the third and 17, it's the, just a staple of beating these modern zones where, like, you use the rules of the defense against themselves it's what rod always talks about shanahan and mcdaniel mcveigh what those guys know they know the rules of the defense that they're facing and they try to run patterns and matches that are going to use those rules against them and if you are say dragging your three main receivers from one side across a zone it's going to naturally pull those guys away and if you pull that backside guy away enough the guy dragging underneath it is going to be wide open because they're only doing what they're supposed to do with the rules of their zone but if you aren't allocate don't have like you said that sort of heightened awareness because you've been beat by it before that you can see somebody in your periphery and you know that like i'm not fooling for the old banana and the tailpipe the the <laughs> trick that they're pulling on you that they're literally doing this because somebody's going to be dragging across underneath or is going to be just skirting right behind it i saw like it's what the sean payton dealt with it this past weekend with miami over and over in the first quarter it was hilarious because it's the same thing that they're doing to these teams over and over again and it's because you're being taught and coached in those principles that you have to focus on the first guy that's coming through your zone. You just then have to know that there's going to be somebody else coming through the other yeah. way. It's basically, uh, you know, when the RPO kind of, when we started this podcast is really when the RPO really started to kind of take over in the big 12. Yep. And we talked about it. Like that's why it was so tough for, for off ball linebackers. And we talked about it, like what the RPO does for a linebacker. It takes all the keys you've been told to read playing off ball linebacker since you were in playing peewee football and the RPO just destroys all of that. It makes all, yep. all of that, all of that, that's all that information that you process that's become second nature. But the RPO makes all that invalid. So we've had to see defensive coordinators and linebackers coaches really adjust to that. And I think they're finally starting to get caught up to it a decade later of, okay, this is how you need to handle the RPO. And now we've got all these spread babies coming up. So got linebackers that are in college now. They've seen RPO offenses since they were in middle school. So now they have a really good grasp, a much better yes. grasp on it than guys did 10 years ago. It's their second nature. To a decade before that was a zone read in the defensive end and knowing when to crash down and understanding who you're facing at quarterback and who's the legit threat. But it's all these scenarios where we've just seen it advance 10 yards further downfield and using those basic rules and getting a player in like a 2-1 conflict. And that's why we always talked about the QB run game because it – 
takes away that two one conflict and it actually puts the numbers inside the advantage of the quarterback of the offense when he can be a run game. But then the idea of, well, let's move from the zone read to make it the vertical passing game and using things like the zone read where you can now make the RPO be a quick pass to a tight end running a seam route and it ends up being a 50 yard gain. And then using the same concept of two guys running through one coverage zone and using that guy's rules against them. They're quite similar. It's just attacking one on the D line, one on the linebacker level, one on the DB level. Man, I'm, I'm just looking at Sawyer Robertson's numbers from that game, Matt, when he was under pressure, uh, pretty much half of his dropbacks. I know. I apologize. He had 44 dropbacks. I was, I was looking at the kept clean number. So 44 dropbacks, kept clean on 30 of them, under pressure on 14, under pressure. Uh, so that's about 32% of his dropbacks, three for six for 13 yards, 2.2 yards per attempt. Um, dot was seven and a half yards. Yeah, not not great. Uh, but even when he was kept clean, 17 to 29 for 190, he did have the interception, uh, but – you know, one turnover worthy play and three drops. Like that's the thing. Like when he was put, even when he was able to put the ball on target, it was hitting the ground. Like, I don't know, man, that Baylor offense, I take, I'm taking nothing away from Texas. It sounds like I'm taking stuff away from Texas. I'm not. Is that Baylor offense, man? They were just so out of sync and, and you credit that to Texas. I think it almost like they never really recovered Matt from that first drive. Like I said, when Byron Murphy busted through and got that sack and then the very next play, Baron Sorrell gets around the corner, uh, with Texas using a three-man rush, it almost, it's almost like Baylor just felt shell-shocked. They never really put anything together the rest of the game unless the only things Baylor got in this game, scoring-wise, was because Texas gave it to him either on turnovers in the kicking game or penalties by the defense. Yeah, and like you said, that uh, all it was, that I think that opening drive, whenever you have five on three and you're losing up front, you know you're in for it because what are you going to do at that point? Right. That's why Texas didn't – they didn't have to blitz a whole lot. No. Nope. They were getting pressure with their – this is, man, dude, Matt, 14 dropbacks uh, where he was under pressure. Texas had the five, their five sacks on those 14 dropbacks. Yep, then that's that means you're getting home and when getting the job done, something Texas wasn't able to do last season nearly as much, but just the ratio, the amount of sacks that you get in. And like I, I loved, I heard uh, some of Dr. Ruben Pizarro's calls over the last couple of weeks, <laughs> but whenever the, I can't wait to see the Baylor ones this week because after we had the Wyoming touchdown to Byron Murphy, El Pit Bull. And the pit bull was a guy that ended up with two sacks and three tackles for loss this week. He was just, I mean, he looked unstoppable. He is, uh, we laughed at uh, at the time because we're, wow, Keandre Coburn really thinks highly calling him the Aaron Donald of this defense. But like, that's the sort of the way he plays. If you were to find a comp, not nearly as good, but an undersized guy that really is just a fire hydrant of fight. Texas, by the way, uh, 18th in the country. In sacks per game, 3.25, three and over three, three and a quarter right now. And we're talking about them two years ago, Matt, when they were at 1.67 sacks per game. Uh, they were just over two, 2.08 last year. You're a full sack for more than a full sack per game right now, better than you were last year. Yeah, and that's exactly where you need to be. You need to be able to get those 
big impact plays because I know the study was done in the NFL and it was like back by in like 2016 by Derek Clawson, who's really good at some of the advanced analytics. And it basically said in the NFL, like 85% of drives are killed whenever you sack the quarterback. It's almost something that's irrecoverable from if you're an offense. So it's so valuable. Now you'd like to get those pressures and pressures can lead to other good things, but actually getting the sack out of the pressure is so much more valuable. Texas is also in the top 30 nationally and tackles for loss per game at 6.8. I think we pretty much Matt said everything there needs to be said about the defense. Like I, I just, when you, when you can dominate up front, you're getting the level of linebacker play you're getting from Jalen Ford right now. And you know, you do give up some big plays because you're going to give up shots, but man, you're really limiting the big plays. You're making these offenses try to drive the length of the field. Um, you know, it. I just can't say enough about the, the the caliber of defense we're seeing compared to where it was two years ago. Man, it is it is night and day how much better things are, and it's it's a much. It almost takes away from the offense's struggles a little bit to me. It does because I feel like man. When you can play championship caliber defense, you're going to set not only you're going to set yourself up uh, to win a lot of games, but it almost makes the offense's shortcomings more palatable because now you alluded to it earlier with Sark and how he calls a game. Whether you're a fan watching it or you're watching it in the press box like me, you're almost thinking, okay, doesn't matter if you go three and out. You know, you've got a punter now that can flip the field and the defense has shown. They can flip this. They can flip this back and get you good field position if they can force a three and out right here. And you're confident that they can do that. It's almost like the dread of, oh my gosh, please just don't let them give up a chunk yardage touchdown. I know they're going to give up something. Just don't let it be a big touchdown. That has now been replaced by the confidence of, yeah, I know they're going to get off the field at some point. They, they might get a, this offense might get a first down, but th- this defense will get them off the field at some point. Yep. The defense has been great, and I would say that this week will be the best test. I think Kansas's offense oh is be- is better than Alabama's offense. But when you look at say Texas's offense, Texas's offense at least has performed. Its best two games have been against the better two teams against Alabama and against Baylor. Now you wish that they would have performed really well against Rice and against Wyoming, but late in that game, in the second half of those games, I'd say their offense did perform well. They just didn't have good first halves against those two teams, which now when you get into this part of conference play, you might not be able to be afforded the luxury of having a bad half and still leaving with the victory, and it's just lucky that well, you have non-conference games sort of for a reason. It's not necessarily preseason, but the way the NFL treats preseason, like in college, If you're one of these big time programs, those cupcakes that you get, you can sort of work your way through it because once you get to conference play, you can't be afforded those times. And that's where the defense, like you said, carrying Texas gives you the confidence. And I bet it does give the offense offense way more confidence. But when you look at the performance of this offense, it's starting to have some numbers that really translate well to winning is like the percentage of first downs on first or second down. 
up into the 11th in the country after this game to where you see the numbers start to normalize after four or five games because Texas mm-hmm. was elite at that last season. And it's something that I wouldn't expect Texas to struggle with the way they have such an explosive passing game. But right now, an EPA per pass, an EPA per rush, and this from Parker Fleming on Twitter. If you check out Stats of War, Texas 20th and 21st. So in the top 25 overall, EPA per play is going to be at 16th in the country. And when you're facing a team like Kansas, yeah, Kansas, it, no matter where you look at the metrics, if you look at uh, SP Plus has tech, oh, Kansas as a 20th best offense. I know PFF's power rankings has them as a 19th. If you look at EPA per play, they're at 12th. So you're facing something in the mirror quite similar to your offense. That one thing is, is Texas defense is elite and Kansas's defense is one of like the bottom 50 in the country. So that's where this week Texas's offense, if you come out slow, you still may be able to survive, but I got a feeling they may be able to do a lot this weekend. Yeah. It, I'll say this about the Kansas defense though. It's a lot better than it was last year where man you could almost pick how you wanted to score against Kansas. You want to run the ball like go back like Yeah, run defense is yeah. a lot better. Run defense is a lot better. They still struggle in coverage, but their run defense is definitely much better. Yeah, their defensive success rate against the pass, they're 97th in the country. So, it's the guy, there's work to be done there admittedly, but you know, running the ball like you think Matt when Oklahoma beat them last year like it was a Dylan Gabriel was back for that game and it was just them chunking the ball all over the place. And man, Quinn wouldn't have had to attempt a pass last year in that game. Yes. I know he did a few, but man, it, most of the stuff he had after like the first couple of drives, it's like all, the only thing Quinn threw pretty much were, were screens, screens and just quick game stuff because they could not stop your run game. And, and think about it too, if you remember Roshan got hurt, was it the first or second drive of that game where, where Roshan got dinged up with the ankle injury? And that was the game where you just put it in Bijan's belly. And then when Bijan was done, hell, Jonathan Brooks had had a hell of a day in the second half. So yes, if if anybody wants to see the best and most fun highlights of Bijan's career, just watch the highlights against Kansas last year. Like you said, like Quinn was literally in awe watching Bijan break people's ankles on the field last season. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk we'll getting more into that game here in a little bit, but uh I just want to talk about the Texas offense from the Baylor game a little bit. Uh not Matt, not their best day running the football in terms of yardage. But I felt like it was their most consistent game running the football from start to finish. Not yep, a lot of negative plays in this game. No, for sure. And like you had Jonathan Brooks finish the game with five yards after contact per attempt. Like coming into the game, I had tweeted out the numbers that Baylor was 100, 132nd, I believe, in the country in yards allowed before contact. Per attempt, it was 3.35. And then Jonathan Brooks on his career was averaging 4.35 per attempt after contact. So you tie those together, that's 7.7. He didn't get quite there, but still finishing with 106 yards, multiple touchdowns, Quinn on the ground going for a TD. And then when you look at just the PFF numbers, which, you know, deals with all the sack yardage, so it doesn't always align with box score numbers, but true rushing attempts, 29 for 190 Mm -hmm. at 6.6 per attempt and four rushing touchdowns to where like if you, if I hope I would love Texas to be at a state offensively where we can look at 190 and four rushing touchdowns, 6.6 in attempt and be like, it wasn't super impressive because that means (laughs) expectations are very high. 
Yeah, if you just look at the box score, sack adjusted rushing yards, uh, 196.1 per carry. So that's, like I said, it just, it felt like, I know they had the, Brooks had the 40-yarder and Quinn had the 29-yarder on the scramble, but it just felt like they were making more. Hey, like if you look at Brooks, just look at his, just his rundown. Now he does have some negative runs in here, but it's five negative two forty three five six zero four two four minus one three twelve nine twelve five. That's indicative of a guy though. Like you look at late third, early fourth quarter. That's the kind of stuff we talk about when you talk about a back that gets better as the game goes on. That can wear a defense down. Like he's getting you know twelve nine twelve five like five plus. For pretty much there's a stretch there, but late third, early fourth quarter, he's getting five plus on all of his carries. Yep, that's big too. And he came out good too, because I know I had tweeted out that he had nine for 63 and two TDs in the first half. So and when you look at his numbers across the board, seems like he's pretty consistent. And it's good to see Baxter back, you know, Baxter guy that got dinged up a few times, but you can tell when the ball is in his hands, he sort of has he it's a nice little one-two punch because he has that short space quickness, a little bit more, say, explosivity, where Brooks, he can bust a big play, but just the running styles, I mean, you look at Baxter, it just seems to have those choppy feet that really move quick and can get through the holes and can be used differently. Like, I know both, if you look at the way that they've their receiving yards come, they look quite different. Like, Baxter's a guy, you get him out there sort of on the outside in some lined up at, out wide and throw traditional wide receiver screens to him. And, and unlike Brooks, who's a guy that's sort of used in the backfield with the misdirection and a guy that maybe get left behind or your traditional screen game from a running back. So it'll be fun to see how those two progress in the passing game in addition to the running game. Uh, I want to give the tight ends they're doing the run game because especially on the Brooks 40-yarder, I like the fact, Matt, that they're running the ball more out of the 6-0 line package. Like we talked about it last year. That thing got pretty predictable because you knew like when Andre Carrick came in the games, all right, they're going to max protect and try to take a shot, which felt like they did almost, you know, you could tell they were telegraphing it, what they were doing last year. Now, when you look at what they're doing, now they're running the ball. They're running more of their traditional run game in that 6-0 line package. They had the 6-0 line package on the field for the Brooks 40-yard run. You look at Malik Ogbo blocking down. He had a really good block on that play, and then Gunnar Helm pulling around to seal it and give him an edge. Uh, I, I throw Ogbo in that group too because of the 6-0 line package. But, man, I love what the tight ends are doing and the fact that now they're getting rewarded in the passing game for like Jatavian yes. Sanders for what he's doing. He led you in targets this game. He had eight targets, five catches for 110, 62 yards after the catch. Uh, and even Gunnar Helm, uh, two targets, caught both of them with 37 yards, 29 yards after the catch. So I like the we, – we talk about all the time what the importance of a good tight end does. He blends – your desire to have a power running game with your spread passing game elements. He, he tied that a good tight end ties that together. And now your tight ends, you're, you're rewarding them in a lot of ways for what they're doing as blockers. They're reaping the benefits now because now they're getting involved in the past game. And, and I, I, I've said it from the beginning and you know, I've said this, man, I felt like Jatavian Sanders could be the identity of this offense in the way Bijan was the identity of the offense last year. Haven't really seen that yet, but it's funny. In the two home games, he had like the 44-yard touchdown against Rice, and that was pretty much it. But in the two road games, 
he's been a monster 100-yard games in both road games this year. Yeah, and if you look at his numbers, I mean, he's basically the best tight end in the country. I haven't uh, scoured across all of them, but it's going to be hard to find anybody putting up multiple 100-yard games the way he is. And then you mentioned it there, too, with Helm when you combine them. Now, I know PFF, they, their target number is a little bit different because they don't include throwaways to where it's nine targets between the two, seven receptions, 147 yards, and that's on only 34 routes. Now, look at Jatavian Sanders' yards per route run in this game was 4.78. Gunner Helm was was 3.36, you know, and that's compared. I mean, A.D. Mitchell in this game had a good solid game. It was what 1.84. Like if you're over two, that's a good number. When you combine yeah. the production from the tight ends and it ends up being 147 yards on 34 routes, that's 4.32 yards per route run, not per target or throw. Just when they go on a route, they're specifically getting that much when you average it out over a game, which is uber elite. Like I know that worthy as a freshman against man coverage was like one of the best numbers I'd ever seen. And it was 4.37 per route, yeah. like uh, comparatively last year, somebody like Hyatt for uh, Tennessee was up over three and a half yards per route run. Yeah. Guys like uh, Marvin Mims. I know, I think it was maybe his freshman or sophomore year. He finished over four yards per route, but you're talking the elite of the elite, the best receivers in the country, maybe get four yards per route run. And last game, you were getting that type of production from both of your tight ends just to show how good they were. Yeah. Worthy was one of the best in the country his freshman year. I think he was like with top 10, Matt, top 15 in the country in yards per route run. And I know that number was 2.67. Sure. 2. Yes, that that's exactly to where if you're like in the NFL right now, I know Tyreek Hill over the last two years is borderline or over. He's like 3.6, but like the number two and number three are Jordan Jefferson and Rashid Shahid are both right around three yards per route run. So anything over two is great. And the yards per, per route run metric, I like that because rather than just looking at yards per reception, it takes out the, uh, the bias that can come in that raw numbers can have just in terms of, man, if a guy just has a play where maybe he catches a couple screens, but then he catches like a 50-yard bomb on the final play of the half and his tackle, like basically it gives you a more – it's what you like about the analytics is – it gives, especially like PFF, it gives you a better idea of who is more productive on a play-by-play -play basis rather yep. than just the the, em the empty calories sometimes that the, the raw numbers can show you. Yep, and they can also show you, they can help describe what type of player a player is because, like you said, there will be some players that are just sort of your wind sprinters out there that just are being used as a tool to be somebody that stretches a defense for the other players but aren't necessarily that impactful to where it doesn't always tell the full story, but you're right. It's the best metric for wide receivers, and it's going to constantly tell you the guys who's producing the most for their offense while they're out there on the field. It's sort of like a way that you can look at a plus minus for basketball players, not necessarily as an individual stat, but also to tell you the story of, well, when this guy's on the court, why does the coach keep putting a guy like PJ Tucker that never scores on the court? Well, because he impacts winning in a much higher level. And this is a type of metric for wide receivers that'll show you more than not, which ones impact winning the most. Yeah. Um, 
What do you think of Quinn in this game, Matt? Because you start looking at the numbers, like the you know 75% completion percentage for the game, that's a single-game career high for him. You know, overall, it's, it, no matter what numbers you're looking at, it's going to be one of his better games. But uh, I don't want to say there was meat left on the bone, but I thought I thought Quinn was good. Uh, but I think it just shows you it, – it's the intriguing thing about him, right? Like the numbers all show that he was he was really good, but – the eye test tells you, man, as, as good as that was, there's still still another level or two he can get to. Yeah, and that's because he wasn't really asked to do much because he really yeah. didn't need to. I mean, he was one of three uh, on passes more than 20 yards downfield. He was one for three for 51 yards. Like, that's damn good if you're throwing the ball three times and getting 17 yards out of it. I mean, we always talk about deep ball averages somewhere around 35 to 40% and he was right around there. If you look at the intermediate area, an area that, say, in the NFL wins more than not and throwing across the middle of the field somewhere where you have to be advanced to be able to do it. They used to not ask young quarterbacks to do nearly as much, but nowadays it's a necessity. Mm -hmm. Quinn was 5 for 5 for 117 yards and a touchdown. So that's perfect. That's a 158 uh, NFL passer rating. So if you're talking about – on passes that were more than 10 yards downfield, he was six of eight for 168 yards, like and a touchdown. So if you're talking about eight attempts more than 10 yards downfield and he's getting 168 yards, that's 21 yards per reception. That's exactly what our tight ends also averaged when you combine Helm and Jatavian's 147. So, I mean, underneath, he executed everything as you would want him to as well to where I'd say it wasn't. There's no weakness you could really point to. He didn't make a mistake, and then he even showed off that explosivity to where a lot of people I know that me just following like daily fantasy and people are like, "Man, this Quinn Ewers was, you know, top tier recruit. Like he's supposed to be a dual threat. He never runs. What's up with this?" And <laughs> like maybe maybe not realizing that he was coming back off of a broken collarbone or whatever last year. And I think that's sort of something they maybe didn't ask him to do nearly as much, but he surprised the Baylor defense because the Baylor did wasn't respecting him to right. turn the corner and get upfield and trot that in for a touchdown. Like you saw the explosivity on that play. And that's something that's untapped territory that if you had that inside the game, in addition to being, well, What's his other weakness? Can't throw downfield. Well, six for eight for 168 and a TD. That's basically perfect. It's like you're starting to see the game grow in the areas that people maybe said he was lacking or was not taking advantage of his skill set with. But if this progression continues, I mean, you're already starting to hear some people talk about him. But, like, I know that when I watch the North Carolina and a lot of these other top quarterbacks, they de necess aren't necessarily having the type of seasons people thought that they would have. If you look at the current odds to win the Heisman, Penix and Caleb Williams are 4-1 to one odds. Quinn Ewers is at 6-1, to one, so third best odds. Bo Nix is 10 to 1, Jordan Travis 12 to 1, Jaden Daniels 18 to 1, Sam Hartman 22 to 1, Dylan Gabriel 25 to 1. Then you got McCord and Van Dyke, Ohio State and Miami quarterback at 30 to 1, and Drake May at 35 to 1. So, like, you're talking about Quinn, he's almost the odds on favorite to win the Heisman. Right now, he's just barely behind Penix and Caleb. So, that's looking pretty good. So, I did want to bring two things up on offense, and this came up on the flagship message board and Horns 24-7 during the game. Uh, 
you know, you can watch a game and, and complain about things, but I think it also can help you kind of understand things. If you're looking for the meaning, like the two things that I kept hearing, why does Sark keep throwing the ball on first down? And the other thing was, why are they utilizing empty formation? And I swear, one of those weeks, <laughs> I really wish Rod was here because we did see Texas. They Matt, they probably ran empty in this game more than we've seen them run empty before. And I think a lot of that had to do with the early pressure Quinn was getting. Man, just go to empty, make them show their hand, simplify it for the quarterback. Now, the problem was, early on, they were running a lot of long developing stuff and not really a lot of the quick hitters. So the pressure, when Baylor did bring it, when Texas was an empty, the pressure was able to get there. There's nothing wrong with empty formation. Like I said, though, it, it, I... I'll be honest, I used to not like empty because I felt as an offense, it forces you to, to reveal your hand. But Rod has made me see it from the other side where, hey, you're also making the defense have to show their hand. If they're a defense that relies a lot on simulated pressure and movement, you can eliminate a lot of that window dressing and clean things up for the quarterback. So you, if you're running the right plays out of empty, Empty is fine. Same thing with throwing on first down. If you're just taking, uh, you know, intermediate to deep shots on first down and you're getting second and 10 all night, well, yeah, then it becomes counterproductive. But that goes back to my whole air raid argument. If you're throwing the ball on first down and you're getting four yards or you would run it on first down and get four yards, the hell difference does it make how you got the four yards? Yeah, exactly. You shouldn't be biased towards one or the other. You need to get the yardage. And when you look at what's more impactful, like analytics have shown you that, like, not only is the passing game going to be more efficient a lot of the time, but in this situation, you're doing it because a lot of the time it's breaking the tendencies. Now, yeah. now Texas is one that normally now teams maybe understand that Sark throws more on first down, but I mean, D coordinators and defenses are just programmed to expect certain things on early downs and then situational football follows if you're on or off schedule. And that's where some of the better play callers, especially in the modern RPO game, in the modern play action game, and just the, mo the, the current state of football using those different keys against the defense, it's so valuable early on to be able to go and break those tendencies from time to time because you get paid off so much more when you do so. It's why Texas last season was fifth in the country on percent of first downs on first or second down. 73.6% of the time, Texas wasn't having to worry about getting to third down and fourth right. down and third down and fourth down are hard. We've talked about that a lot now. Texas so far this season on offense is 58th in the country. They're 41.7% on third or fourth down. But what happens in third and fourth down? Well, you give a lot of the answers to the defense. That If it's short yardage, you're probably going to be tipping your hand and they're going to know what's coming, which is why it makes it tougher. Or if it's third and long, it's going to put you in obvious pass down situations. And that's when you can see true pass rush specialists come in and you can have coverages weighted to the strengths of your passing game to where you want to have those cards in your hand as if you're playing poker where you can't see what your opponent's doing. And if you are the ones that's dictating those terms on the first and second down, early downs, being able to break tendencies, just making the defense not know what's coming is so valuable that even this year, Texas on percent of first downs on first or second down has moved up to 11th in the country, which is good. It's not nearly as high of a percentage, but still it's something that's looking 
really good. So when you look at Texas overall, it could at times put you behind the sticks, and that's where play calling really does come into play. But a lot of the time it's worth the gamble because the defense doesn't know what's coming, which is very valuable in modern football. Well, let's talk about the Texas offense, Matt, and just in terms of looking at the Kansas defense and where you notice the improvement for Kansas is the number of guys that they're counting on to get snaps up front. I mean, they, I think against BYU, they rotated in like seriously, something like 11, 12 guys just on just in their front four throughout that game. So, that's they I know they've recruited and developed. They've added some bodies to the portal. That's the biggest that's the biggest difference what I see with KU now under Lance Leipold. Like even even in the bad years, they they would always have a a Puka Williams or somebody that you felt like, okay, if this guy gets enough touches, he can beat you. But now it, it's what they've done up front and the depth that they have on that defensive line. Now, as they start playing better teams, We'll figure it, and that's kind of what's interesting to me about how, physically how is KU going to be after playing a team like BYU? Because we know what BYU can do to you just from being in a sixty-minute battle with those guys, but their their depth on their defensive line, just in terms of how many guys they feel like they can count on, is really impressive considering where they've been. Yep, and that's that's sort of a sign, just like we talked about Texas, where the signs of improvement as a program or say where we talked about the weakness of Baylor is right now compared to the last few years. It's a good way to gauge what the way a direction of program's going is how many of those bodies that are impactful up front are you able to stack up on the offensive and defensive line. And like you said, you look at the snap counts, Kansas has guys up and down the board that are contributing and it keeps you fresh. So you're able to bring in guys also like we were just talking situational football and being able to have guys that win on early downs or guys that can win in the past game and that's when a lot of the time where you see these platooning d linemen that not only are keeping fresh but you're able to sort of focus in on the strengths of the players so kansas definitely a bit improved and that's where like we had talked about the rush defense looking a lot better for them. And then coming off, that's where Texas, like you said, has a bit of a advantage possibly facing off against BYU last week where you know they knocked around some heads up front in Kansas with the, at quarterback. We haven't seen Jalen Daniels uh, necessarily run at all this year because of his health. I mean, he was the guy that was the late scratch to open the season. He's had these reoccurring back issues which held him out of the last couple weeks of – camp then for the opener it was reported that he was going to be playing but then Bean and him both were out for warm-ups and it still like was announced but then you see Bean is comes in as a starter and even until game two up until game time it was another one of those scenarios sort of like I know Texas fans will remember last year Dylan Gabriel with his concussion still out there warming up and Mm -hmm. then wasn't came out as a starter sort of been that for the first two weeks and the second week was whenever it was thought Bean may continue, but then Jalen Daniels got the first start. But you've obviously, with his back issues, seen him sort of hold off on the heavy run game stuff in the opening weeks. And, I mean, he looks healthy while he's been out there, but it's just something to keep in mind. So I'll give you, Matt, they played KU used six defensive tackles in the BYU game. Here are their snap counts, 7, 11, 33, 19, 40, and 26 
And of the three defensive ends that they used, now Craig Young is a guy for them that uh, he'll kind of be, uh, he'll float a little bit at 6'3", 225. They'll use him in a, in a couple different ways. But they're guys that are primarily hand-down defensive ends. They use three of them against BYU, 13 snaps, uh, 30 snaps, 52 snaps. So that's it's not like they're just having somebody spell guys. I mean, they're, it's a pretty deep defensive line that they feel like they're they're getting a lot of good usage out of those guys. I know over-exaggerated earlier, so it was really uh, nine guys that they used against BYU. Still, that's a lot of bodies yeah. to be able to go out there and keep free. And also, they're probably smartly knowing that Texas is coming up in Texas. This, stacking those two teams back-to-back is really tough for Kansas. But for them to have that depth, it's way, way light years ahead of where they were, say, five years ago. And we've already seen Kansas five years ago and Kansas two years ago beat Texas. So we're at a point that, you know, you can't take te- Kansas for granted anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely one of the best offenses they've had. And it's, I'd say, probably one of the best defenses we've seen, at least in the Leopold era. One thing I do want to mention, though, about the Kansas defense when you look when you look at their their run rate, success uh, their defensive sex rate against the run, forty first nationally. Yeah. Uh, the the challenge is going to be for the Texas offensive line and tight ends. Can you just get your guys to the second level? I feel like if you get Brooks and Baxter to the second level, now you've got a chance to make some hay in the run game, but. It's it's not going to be like last year where you just really had your way with Kansas and really pushed them around, you know, for four quarters. It's going to be a little bit more of a fight, so it might take you some time to to get untracked a little bit. But you can have success against the run. But Matt, we we mentioned it earlier, man. Ninety seventh nationally, KU is in defensive success. Why can I not say that today? Defensive success rate against the pass. Yep, and that's just where they're not being able to keep teams off schedule to where if a team's needing to get a certain amount of yardage in the past game, they're able to still get it, which is really valuable if, say, it's third and long and third and eight, and you're giving those things up. So that's valuable for an offense like Texas, especially that likes to target the ball downfield. And like you had said about Kansas, the run defense, if you look at, say, PFF's run defensive grade, now this is just grading their performance thus far not necessarily saying they're the 17th best run defense but they're graded out so far as the 17th best in the country and that's when you don't really wait in the opponent that they're facing but still light years above I mean comparatively Texas is right next to them at 18th so that run defense heavily much more improved but when you look at the pass defense their EPA per play, 47th, which is respectable. Rush is 59th, which is respectable. But like you said, 41% success rate against their pass is something that they definitely would like to improve. And comparatively, Texas has been, we've talked about it this year, not nearly as efficient in the passing game. You've had some situations where you are trying to get big chunk yardage plays and in one game, say against rice. And then even your Wyoming game can really impact the numbers, which is why Texas grades out at 55th in success rate right there at 39.7%. But when you look at pass EPA per play is 20th and 
Texas has been able to get those large, impactful pass plays when needed against good opponents, which is why you got to be confident in them headed into this ball game against a team like Kansas that hasn't been able to stop people. The other thing I like, Matt, early down play calling for Sark in this one is going to be huge. As you mentioned, that Texas early down success rate percentage of first and first downs that come off first and second down starting to creep up a little bit. They're 14th in the country now, but you look at Kansas. 70th in the country in terms of defensive early down success rate. So that's something expect Sark to throw it on first down, but first and second down play calling for Sark is going to be really big in this game. Yep. And that's where Texas, you know, being 11th on offense and then defensively 14th in the country at limiting those scenarios on first, second down where you get to get your defense out there on third down in Texas. That's where if you look at Kansas has been really good on third and fourth down success rate offense. They're second in the country. They've been successful. And that fits Leopold to a T, especially when you have a big quarterback like a guy like Daniels or Jason Bean as a backup. He's a mobile quarterback. He was at North Texas years ago. People may remember him then, but he's a guy that can extend the game. He's a weapon with his legs. He probably isn't nearly as polished as Daniels in the past game. But that when you have a mobile quarterback option and then you've been able to have Leopold who likes to be able to bludgeon and use a lot of different different misdirection inside of his running game. You can see why they're so successful on third and fourth down in those scenarios, 56.8% of the time, but they're going up against a defense in Texas. That's 18th in the country at stopping on third and fourth. So looking good both ways. And then, like you said, even the Texas defense early down GPA is fifth in the country. So it's nice to see Texas on early downs, Top 10 in both scenarios, fifth in the country on defense, 10th in the country on offense. And if you're having success on those early downs, it's just going to set you up to be more successful. And you can sort of go into that, say, if you're on schedule, go into that third and fourth down, sort of with the strategy, the way that Joey McGuire was able to beat Texas with last year, where you're viewing a drive, say, as a four-play drive instead of a three-play drive. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I got that mixed up with KU, um, with Texas, rather. Early down success rate for Texas offense, 11th in the country. I was looking at defense. I was looking at the wrong number on the chart. But so, yes, basically Texas is getting really good at getting first downs, the percentage of the first downs on, on first and second down. Here's the other thing, Matt, and this is, again, where numbers can be deceiving. If you just looked at it, right, and you said, oh, Kansas is 59th in the country in third down defense, that's not great, but it's not terrible either. Right? They're kind of middle of the road. Go look at how many times the opponents have gotten to third down. Kansas and Baylor are tied for the fewest third down opportunities on defense in the conference with 48 teams aren't. That's where teams are having success against Kansas is on early downs. Teams don't even need to get to third down against Kansas. If they can get their first downs, the majority of them, or at least a decent chunk of them on first and second down, who cares what Kansas is on third down, man. That's, that's where you're going to make your hay is on early downs. Yep, and that's why I think you're going to see Texas passing a lot on those early downs still to continue the trend against the weakness of Kansas. And that's where, like, Texas still with a that negative rush rate over expectation. So they're throwing the ball 3.8% of the time more than you would expect. And so in a down-and-distance scenario where, say, a normal team across the country would run, Texas is throwing the ball 4% more. So that – it lends to what people are seeing on asking why Texas is throwing on, say, first down so much.
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Well, look, stay locked into Horns 24-7. We'll have you covered with for Texas and Kansas. Also, the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network. Uh, Fog.net is our Kansas property. Michael Swain, those guys do a great job over there covering Kansas football like nobody else. Also, uh, you've got a late kick with Josh Pate. you got the Cover 3 podcast. A lot of different avenues to get a, a national perspective on Texas and Kansas. We'll always take care of you here on Longhorn Blitz, but uh, it's never a bad thing uh, to branch out into the family and support the uh, everything everybody's got going on at 24-7 Sports. That is going to do it for us here on Longhorn Blitz this week. Hopefully we get Rod back next week, but if not, we'll march on nonetheless. Matt, thanks for everything, man. You're more than welcome. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. For Matt, for Rod, for everybody in the 24-7 Sports Podcast family and the Horns 24 and the 24-7 podcast channel. Anywhere you get your podcasts, search Horns 24-7. That's Horns 247. No dashes, slashes, or spaces. Click that follow button. Get every episode of the Blitz whenever it drops. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. And thanks to Matt, get all of our archives. Our classic interviews and shows are available on the Longhorn Blitz SoundCloud page. You have to just type in Longhorn Blitz. For the Horns 24-7 family, for the Longhorn Blitz family, I'm Jeff Howe. Thank you so much for downloading and listening, and we will catch you again on the next episode. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount+. Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's the can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and $15,000 a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus.